0: I picked Loveslaver's Lost* because it's a challenging play. And perhaps I got a little tired of hearing people say that it's unintelligible to modern audiences and the like. It is, after all, by Shakespeare. It must be pretty good. It seems to me that there are um, two challenges to the play. The first challenge is its verbal fireworks. And the second challenge is its serious theme, the central problem, which is the role of education in youth. Shakespeare wrote 10 comedies in the first half of his career. None of them are quite that serious or have quite that serious a question that underlies them. I wanted to see what could be made of the language and what could be made of that theme. Hello, I'm Gordon Teske. Francis Lee Higginson, Professor of English Literature at Harvard University.
1: Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Professor Teskey about Love's Labour's Lost, a comedy written around 1595. The King of Navarre and three of his lords have sworn to devote themselves to a harsh regimen of study for three years, during which they will see no women. Of course, no sooner have the four men made this oath than four women turn up at their court, and before long, the men's only study is how to win the ladies' hearts. Love's Labour's Lost is one of Shakespeare's most linguistically virtuosic plays. It's filled with elaborate rhetorical set pieces, clever punning, and fast-paced flirtatious banter. The linguistic complexity has led some scholars to claim that modern audiences can't enjoy this play. The complicated rhetoric and esoteric jokes are just too hard to follow. But in fact, all the wit and humour of these verbal games come across beautifully if you just see them performed.
0: It makes my heart sink when I look into the Riverside Shakespeare and read in the opening sentence of the account of this play by the fabulous critic Anne Barton. In every other case, fabulous critic Anne Barton, who says, you know, the play is impossible for ordinary people to read. I think that's utter nonsense. She must have never seen a great production of the play because it's really about the rhythm with which this material is delivered. The elaborate language and jokes is part of the theatrical rhythm. I talked to actors and I, I said, do you understand these jokes? They were saying, no, not most of them. And I said, do you think the audience does? No, I don't think so. But the audience was laughing the whole time because the actors had a great sense of rhythm and delivery. And they always had that sort of wicked, funny look on the, in their eyes. So this is a case where to understand what the purpose of the innate language in this play is, you have to think about the theater. You can't think about what's in front of you on the page. So my advice is relax. Let it happen to you in the theater. Relax and enjoy it.
1: The play opens with the King of Navarre and his three followers, Longueville, Dumaine and Barone. Let fame that all hunt after in their lives live registered upon our brazen tombs, declares the King in his opening lines. That honour may make us heirs of all eternity. The King plans to win this eternal honour by turning his court into a little academy and devoting himself to learning. He invites the other three men to sign an oath to join him in the same rigorous programme, to study hard for three years, to eat one meal a day and fast one day a week, to sleep only three hours each night, and never, in all those three years, to see a woman. Longeville and Dumaine willingly sign the oath. Barone is more hesitant. Oh, these are barren tasks, too hard to keep. Not to see ladies, study, fast, not sleep. He's also sceptical about how much true knowledge they will gain by shutting themselves up in books. But eventually, he signs the oath too.
0: Of course, it's a comedy. So we expect them to break this killjoy oath as soon as possible. It's almost a law of comedy that any firm resolution taken at the outset, like any firm law that is established, will be broken.
1: And sure enough, they learn right away that they won't be able to avoid women. The French king has sent an embassy to Navarre, led by the French princess. The king does punish someone else who breaks the decree against women. The quick-talking peasant Costard was caught fooling around with the maid, Jaconetta. It was proclaimed a year's imprisonment to be taken with a wench, the king reminds him. Costard quibbles about the terminology. I was taken with none, sir. I was taken with a damsel. When the king says the same applies for damsels, Costard claims she was rather a virgin. Well, it was proclaimed virgin, insists the king. If it were, I deny her virginity, is Costard's reply. But the king hands him over to be held prisoner by a visiting Spanish knight named Don Armado. Armado entertains the king with his tales of travel and his extravagant language. He writes to the king that Costard was consorting with a child of our grandmother Eve, a female, or, for thy more sweet understanding, a woman. But Armado himself is melancholy because he is in love with Jaconetta. Now the French princess arrives on her diplomatic mission.
0: The king of Navarre has helped the French king in his wars and also provided him with um, 200,000 marks. And as uh, security on this loan, the king of Navarre is holding part of the province of Aquitaine until the loan is paid off. However, when the princess has arrived to say, why haven't you surrendered Aquitaine to us? He says, well, we're waiting for you to pay the other half of the loan. And she says, the other half of the loan has been paid. And he says, not to my knowledge, but provide me with documentation of this and all shall be well. So she says, right. Well, our documents will be coming tomorrow. That gives us 24 hours for a love comedy.
1: The princess has arrived with three ladies in attendance who just happen to know and admire the king's three lords. Maria speaks warmly of Longeville. Catherine praises Dumaine and Rosaline says she never talked with a merrier man than Baron. But it seems they won't have much chance to mingle with the men. The king won't let the women inside his court and so they must camp in the field outside. Of course, the men do come out to say hello. While the king and princess negotiate, Barone is drawn to Rosaline. "'Did not I dance with you in Brabant once?' he asks. "'Did not I dance with you in Brabant once?' she replies. "'I know you did.' "'How needless was it then to ask the question? "'You must not be so quick. "'Tis long of you that spur me with such questions. "'Your wit's too hot, it speed's too fast, twill tire.' not till it leave the rider in the mire.
0: And so he says, with a really amazing weakness for Buron, what time is it? And she says, the time that fools should ask. So every direction he turns, she's got a slap waiting for him. It's delightful because of the speed of the exchange. Clearly he's fascinated with her, but also an attractive woman who's not to be humiliated or taken for granted. Well, nevertheless... Become interested in, or curious, perhaps is the correct word, in a in a man whom she's made a public fool of.
1: Dumain, Longeville, and Barone all approach Boyette, the princess's attendant, to ask about the ladies. Boyette tells the princess in turn that he believes the king is in love with her. Meanwhile, Armado releases Costard so he can deliver a love letter for him to Jacanetta. There is remuneration, he says, giving him a coin. Costard is even more delighted with the word than with the payment. Remuneration. Oh, that's the Latin word for three farthings. But no sooner is he on his way than Barone asks him to deliver another love letter to Rosaline. Costard goes to the ladies to deliver Barone's letter, but mistakenly hands over Armado's. We next meet Nathaniel, the clergyman, and Holofernes, the schoolmaster. Holofernes is another character who loves to pile on words and phrases in English and Latin. He criticises Armado for being fancifully verbose while being exactly that himself. His humour is lofty, his discourse peremptory, his tongue filed, his eye ambitious, his gait majestical, and his general behaviour vain, ridiculous, and thrasonical.
0: He is too picked, too spruce, too affected, too odd, as it were. Holofernes is a very funny figure, but not a dislikable one, and he does represent a very uncomfortable social situation for university graduates of the day of which we should never forget, Shakespeare was not one. These poor teachers, they leave the glorious halls of Oxford and Cambridge and off they go to a remote Devon with the task of beating Latin grammar into boys' heads with inadequate textbooks. So they have nothing really to give them any dignity. They're figures of fun in the town. So the, the pomposity is one of the ways they keep their dignity up.
1: Giaconetta arrives with her love letter to ask Nathaniel to read it. But Costard has mixed up the letters again. It's actually from Barone to Rosaline. Nathaniel tells her to show it to the king. The next scene begins with the lovelorn Barone on stage by himself. Earlier, when he sent his love letter to Rosaline, he reflected on himself with disbelief and comic self-disgust. "'I forsooth in love!' He's ashamed because he's breaking his oath against love, and because the woman he loves, so he says, is the least attractive of the French ladies. To be perjured, which is worst of all, and among three to love the worst of all, a whitely wanton with a velvet brow, with two pitch balls stuck in her face for eyes. Pitch here means black as tar. Now In this scene, he's still just as frustrated. I'm toiling in a pitch, pitch that defiles, he says. He's still ensnared by Rosaline's black eyes, eyes that he can hardly admit that he finds attractive. By this light, but for her eye, I would not love her. Yes, for her two eyes. He finally groans. I would not care a pin if the other three were in. He soon learns that the other three are in, in love, during the most brilliant comic scene of the play. It begins when Barone sees the king coming.
0: He steps into hiding as the king enters, and then the king privately gives a soliloquy confessing the same, that he is in love with the princess. And of course, he's overheard by Baron. This is classic theater, right? One person in hiding, overhearing another. So you have that ironical difference where one person knows the situation in part, and another knows the situation in its entirety. And then Longueville enters, and as he does, the king steps into a bush, and uh, Longueville confesses his love for Maria. And he is overheard by the king. And Dumain comes in and confesses his love for Catherine now with the King and Longueville in hiding, so that the King and Longueville both over here they come out, both of them feeling very superior, and denounce Dumain, and then out comes Barone to denounce all of them as hypocrites. Thus I whip hypocrisy. And that's Funny, of course, because he's confessed how embarrassed he is about breaking the oath, and yet he's so severe with them for being oath breakers. We know that the spring of comedy is being wound up as tight as it tight as it can, because to complete the scene, of course, Barone has to be exposed for an hypocrisy worse than that which he has accused the others of.
1: Jacinetta now enters with Barone's love letter to Rosaline. He hastily attempts to tear up the paper, but the others see what it is, and Barone admits, Guilty, my lord, guilty, I confess, I confess, that you three fools lacked me fool to make up the mess. He's just as much in love as they are. The others now mock him, somewhat cruelly, for loving Rosaline, joking that she is black as ebony and that no devil will fright thee so much as she. But ultimately, they all recognise their common plight and plead with Barone to find some clever way to excuse their breaking their oaths. Barone gives an elaborate speech arguing that their vow to study is actually fulfilled by loving, for love is the source of true knowledge. Women's eyes, he says, are the books, the arts, the academies that show, contain and nourish all the world. Then fools you were these women to forswear, or, keeping what is sworn, you will prove fools. He concludes, Let us once lose our oaths to find ourselves, or else we lose ourselves to keep our oaths. The men joyfully resolve to woo these girls of France. The king asks Don Armado to arrange some delightful ostentation or show for the princess to be presented, Armado says, in the posteriors of this day, which the rude multitude call the afternoon. As Armado recruits Holofernes and Nathaniel to help him, Armado's witty page laughs at their Latin and English verbosity. They have been at a great feast of languages and stolen the scraps but he and the others are happy to join in the show. First, however, the king and his men plan a little show of their own. They will court the women disguised as Muscovites or Russians. Boyette reveals their plan to the women, and the princess says that they will disguise themselves too. This way, the men will woo the wrong women. They do it but in mockery merriment, says the princess, and mock for mock is only my intent. It all goes according to the princess's plan. The men arrive in Russian disguises, preceded by a group of black figures that the stage directions call black moors The men do court the wrong ladies, and suffer more comic insults in their bantering exchanges. They decide to reappear out of their disguises to talk more seriously with the women, but this doesn't go any better. When the king invites the princess to join him in his court, she chastises him for breaking his oath, and when Barone pleads his sincere love to Rosaline, Rosaline does not take him seriously. The women also now reveal that they tricked each man into pledging his love to the wrong woman. The men are surprised and irritated, and it looks like conflict may break out, but then Armado and the others arrive to perform their show, The Pageant of the Nine Worthies, featuring heroic figures from history and mythology. During the show, however, conflict does break out. Costard calls out that Giaconetta is two months pregnant with Don Armado's baby, and the two men prepare to fight. All is comic uproar, until a French messenger arrives.
0: Princess of France, at the end when there are five weddings in the offing, five, is suddenly greeted by Monsieur Marcadet, She knows why he's there, to tell her that her father, whom we know is sick, the King of France, has just died. And everything turns away from marriage. That's why love's labor is lost. Everything that that attended towards these five marriages is now put on hold. It, It brings to the fore the moral seriousness of the play. That unwelcome death causes the comedy to turn towards seriousness in a more determined way than other comedies do.
1: When she hears that her father has died, the princess says she will leave for France at once. The king urges her not to let the cloud of sorrow jostle Love's argument, and Baron promises that men will forever be true to the ladies. But the women are still not prepared to take the men's words seriously. We met your loves in their own fashion, like a merriment," says the princess. The men protest that their love is sincere, and the king says, "'Now, at the latest minute of the hour, "'grant us your loves.' "'A time methinks too short to make a world without end "'bargain in,' replies the princess. "'If the king wishes to do anything for her,' she says, "'he can retire from the pleasures of the world, not to win glory in aristocratic studies, but to endure frosts and fasts in a hermitage for a year. If his love can withstand this trial, then, in a year, he may ask for her love. Hence, hermit, then, says the king, my heart is in thy breast. Catherine and Mariah ask Domaine and Longueville to undergo the same trial. Like the king, they agree to undertake it. Barone then asks Rosaline what he can do to win her love. Oft I have heard of you, my lord Barone, she says, and the world proclaims you for a man replete with mocks. Barone likes to use his wit to make fun of others, sometimes hurtfully. To cure him of this tendency, Rosaline tells him to spend one year with the sick and the dying in a hospital and to try to make them laugh. To move wild laughter in the throat of death, it cannot be, he replies. Why, that's the way to choke a mocking spirit, she says. A jest's prosperity lies in the ear of him that hears it, never in the tongue of him that makes it. If he cannot make dying people laugh, she says, then he must... Throw away that mocking spirit, and I shall find you empty of that fault, right joyful of your reformation. Barone agrees to do as she asks. Our wooing doth not end like an old play, he concludes ruefully. Jack hath not Jill. These ladies' courtesy might well have made our sport a comedy. The interrupted romances and the king's death do seem unusual for a comedy but perhaps not for a Shakespearean comedy.
0: There is something general we can appreciate in Shakespeare's comedies, which is that even in his sunniest comedies, Shakespeare likes to introduce this sad or sinister note near the end for balance and contrast with a kind of yin and yang effect. So... We have corpses rising out of graves at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream. We have torture referred to quite casually at the end of Much Ado About Nothing. Plus that final song of Twelfth Night, the darkest song in Shakespeare, about really what it's like to be homeless. And here in Love, Slaver's Lost, it's the image of people in the hospital dying. It's part of the balancing effect of Shakespeare's comedies.
1: Don Armado says that he too will enter a lengthy period of service to win Jacanetta. He also introduces the pair of songs that closes the play, one about the cuckoo that sings in the spring, and one about the owl that sings in winter. After the songs comes the final line of the play.
0: The words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo. You that way...
1: This way. The words can be heard as being spoken to the actors and the audience or to the male and female characters, indicating that their paths will now diverge. The line reminds us that the usual comic marriages have not taken place, but also that this comedy is taking marriage more seriously than most comedies do, an idea that we'll take up in our next episode.
0: Marriage represents that attainment of freedom and, and grown-upness in traditional comedies. In this comedy, there's the proposal that you have to earn it before you get it. It's a more serious proposal. Why should you be given it for free? Earn it before you get it. And so we leave the theater, I think, more sobered, but I don't think disappointed.